Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 28th, 2019. The, he is a racist, he is a con man, he is a cheat edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I was not describing the three of us, describing somebody else, you can guess. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New York. She is with John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. They are in the CBS studios. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hey. On this week's show, Michael Cohen testifies to the house what a day what a day wow meanwhile the president held a second summit with korean dictator kim jong-un and it went awry we'll talk about how it went off the rails and then we'll talk to patrick keefe about his extraordinary new book about northern ireland and the ira say nothing plus we'll have cocktail chatter of course and remember we have a gabfest live in dc at the lincoln theater on wednesday march 27th it will highlight emily's forthcoming book, Charged. You'll get early access to it. We'll talk about it before it's even out. You'll be the first people to know about the season's big new book. Go to slate.com slash live to get information and tickets. And uh, we'll, of course, do a regular show and talk about Emily's book as well. And she'll sign sign her book for you. And we're going to do another live show on Friday, April 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, as part of the Tom Tom Festival. You can also get tickets to that show at slate.com slash live. What a wild Wednesday it was. Michael Cohen, the president's former fixer, I would like to have a fixer, testified to the House about a wide variety of subjects. It was just a crazy, crazy day. Cohen alleging the president knew of the WikiLeaks dump before it happened, uh, that the president induced him to lie about his uh, outstanding business in Russia, that the president in- had him lie to Melania Trump about a Stormy Daniels affair, the president paid him off about a Stormy Daniels affair, so much else. What was the most important thing, John, that came out of that day, that, as far as you can tell? We're only 24 hours after, so who knows? Sure. I would, uh, I would, add, I would say two things. I'm not sure whether I'm adding. I'm at, maybe adding one, not the other. Anyway, so on the ta- on the, uh, he alleges, Cohen alleges that Jay Sekulow, the, one of the president's other private lawyers, changed his testimony when he first testified to uh, Congress about the Trump Tower deal. Um, as we know, the President Trump as a candidate, lied about whether he was pursuing business in Russia. He was, in fact, pursuing business in Russia um, throughout the campaign. Uh, He said he wasn't. Cohen claimed that the White House, that the president's lawyer changed his testimony on that timing point. If that's true, then the president's uh, involved in lying to Congress. The second thing is that the president is currently under investigation in the Southern District of New York, and Emily will correct me here, um, for on this question of the Stormy Daniels payment. Um, and uh, w- he wrote, a, one of the checks he wrote to Cohen to reimburse him for the money that he gave to, was it both Stormy Daniels and um, Karen McDougal or just Stormy Daniels? Anyway, paid him back while he was president, which pulls him to the extent that he committed a crime, then that pulls it. And by the way, it's a it's a conspiracy, too, because he engaged in it with a bunch of other people. It pulls his behavior into the present moment when he is president of the United States. So those are two things. And I guess what I would say about those two things and about the entire Cohen testimony is he said a bunch of stuff. He's a liar. Sure. Well, all the things he said can be verified. And there are both the things that are presently being verified by Mueller and the Southern District of New York. And there are also things that the committee can ask to have verified, specifically with respect to his taxes. Cohen claimed that the president monkeyed with his net worth in order to get tax benefits. The committee can, using that information, say this is reasonable to go look into the tax returns. On the question of whether he's a liar, which we should return to, it's all possible to verify the things that he says. So nobody needs to take his word for it. Emily. Yeah, that's all true. And also, there are all these good follow-up questions, right? I mean, 
you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the one who very, I thought, deftly laid the groundwork for going after the tax returns. But there are all these other things. Like, I still want to know if Michael Cohen was in Prague or not, for example. Now, I suppose he wasn't supposed to talk about that. Because no, he, that... he claimed he wasn't in Prague. Oh, he did? He yeah. Said that? Okay. Yeah. So that take, the reason that's, dear listeners who aren't following along to every jot and tittle, the Steele dossier said Cohen was in Prague. And so Cohen, who's mostly seen as a pariah by the president's defenders and the president, um, nevertheless was believed on that count where um, he said he wasn't in Prague, which people use as uh, as reason to, to um, discredit the entire Steele dossier. Well, what's interesting, John, to go to your point about whether he's a liar is that some of what was striking in his testimony is what he didn't confirm. He said he hadn't been to Prague, said he hadn't been told right. directly to lie, say he didn't know definitively about the Trump Tower meeting. He just kind of imputed that, that what he was saw Don Jr. whisper to his father was about the Trump Tower meeting um, and various other things where he didn't he didn't confirm the most salacious. Uh, he said there was didn't think there was a videotape of Trump's striking Melania in an elevator. And so, of course, Republicans seized on that as evidence like, oh, look, he's he's vindicated the president on certain fronts. <laughs> but of course, anything where he didn't vindicate the president, they accused him of being a liar. Did Do, do you think it makes him more credible that he didn't in every situation um, attack the president? I don't know. I think one of the things that may make him seem credible is that much of what he says has the ring of truth. Um, which in that is, it fits with the picture we already have of Donald Trump. Precisely. Right? Exactly. I mean, I felt like... And we should get into the meta conversation here about lying, which is kind of extraordinary because um, a lot of his critics say that because he told a lie in instance X and Y, you can't believe anything he said. They said that in defense of somebody who has told verifiable lies on instances X, Y, and Z, you know, depending on how you feel about a president's words and how that relates to national security and the nation, you could argue they are bigger uh, untruths. More consequential. More consequential. One might say. So you're setting up a standard where a person, if they lie in one instance, is not to be believed on anything else in defense of a person who is, if your logic followed, you would have that same view about. So that was one of the just kind of crazy things that was going on in the course of this. But back to your point, David, about the, the general credibility. I mean, the, the credibility will be the extent that he's backed up by the independent investigations into the things he claimed, some of which we should note he said are still ongoing and he couldn't talk about, which I should think would make them nervous in the White House. But but I think secondly, I think, you know, the things that he said about the president, people can have their own judgment about that. And while he is a liar, if a liar tells you it's raining and you're getting wet, you can believe them. The other thing that, to me, added some credibility, I'm going to want to go too far with this, but if Cohen was making up stories, he could have made them much more definitive, right? So he's <laughs> saying, like, he heard Don Jr. come around and whisper to Donald Trump about a meeting, but didn't say in the testimony, oh, Don Jr. was talking about the Russia-Trump Tower meeting. It was left ambiguous. And so... I don't know. If you were going to make something up about that, wouldn't you make up something better? I assume that that moment is not verifiable, right? Uh, ditto with this notion of um, Trump being on the phone with Roger Stone and getting and saying, oh, that's good about a heads up about the WikiLeaks, you know, leak of the DNC emails. So they, they made sense if you are thinking of how Con presented this, that Trump wasn't, you know, directing him to lie. He wasn't cautious enough to have these kind of flagrant directives of illegalities, but there were these like relatively subtle but significant hints that Cohen was pointing to. I should also say that, you know, WikiLeaks had already made an announcement in June, uh, a month before this Roger Stone phone call to Trump that um, these hacks were on the way. So we don't want to like overplay that piece of news, but it is, uh, to me, matters that Trump's response was like, oh, good. Were you guys struck at all that Republicans, with the exception of Justin Amish from Michigan, that Republicans did not try to probe the claims that Cohen was making? They essentially seemed to be accepting the president as a crook or didn't care, not caring about the, the kind of truth value of whatever is Cohen is saying, instead just focusing on Cohen. I was, I've been trying to figure that out. Um, and then we should add in here this interesting moment that uh, we should talk about it on its own, but I think it's in this basket, which is Congressman Mark Meadows defending the charge that the president was a racist by um, presenting a, f a former Trump employee who now works at HUD. Oh, my God. Um, 
I was a person of color in this very strange moment. We, we should get to that. But it was that was I felt like the only instance in which the president's character itself was defended. I don't think um, very, poorly. very ably at all. The general thrust of their tone, tenor, remarks and otherwise was extremely supportive of the president on, in a general sense. I mean, they were they were really and I felt I did not watch it from beginning to end, but I I spent a fair amount of time watching and the the thrust of all the responses in the questioning was qu- quite uh, solidly rallying around the president. Th- that actually was even striking to me. I thought they might try and put some distance or 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 focus on the particulars because then they wouldn't, you know, they they wouldn't necessarily have to get in the um in full defense of the president mode, but there was absolutely no distance between the president and his party. Can I just pause for sort of a loud and sad but very heartfelt digression or not digression i have the overwhelming sense that this cohen testimony all for all the people have made so much about it really 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 doesn't matter yeah politically Um, doesn't matter because everyone's already politically doesn't matter it yeah it's nothing that we don't already know we already know the president is capable and of extraordinarily immoral and probably criminal behavior you know, we have confirmation from a person who knows him quite well that he's a person without virtue, but we all know that he's a person without virtue. It's evident. It doesn't matter because there's a partisan divide. We have a Republican Party has 35 percent core support. It controls the presidency. It controls one house of Congress. It controls the Supreme Court. It has structural advantages that give it, uh, you know, that locks it in. There's not any need for anyone to escape the iron handcuffs of factionalism that we suffer from. Mm -hmm. And there's no longer any point in saying, oh, if this were a Democrat, Republicans would have burned down the White House by now. The system does not work. It's not that the system is breaking. It's not that the system is about to break. It's not that there are problems. It is broken. It is done. Like the American political system is no longer responsive to the public, no longer responsive to tradition, no longer responsive to the laws. And we have a slight edge of the judiciary sort of holding back, restraining some of this, but it's very slight. I'm extraordinarily pessimistic about this. I mean, I think like, you know, it's entirely possible that Democrats will defeat Trump at the box office, ballot box, excuse me, not the box office, <laughs> the ballot box <laughs> not in, in, the box in office, 2020. Not win that fight, actually. Yeah. Um, they may win at the ballot box, but it's but the corruption and the brokenness in the system is complete and it's irreversible. And I think those of us who hope like, oh, there's a, an election can remedy this or a, a Democratic majority in the House can remedy this. It is gone, friends. It's so gone. Why we, do you think we, that we, we are really, really hosed? Because why? Because and this and this 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 set? Cohen really. What do you mean the precedent this sets? Well, I'm why is if the country were to snap back in this dramatic way and reject Trump and Trumpism in 2020, why wouldn't that be a remedy? Well, because there is a the parties, in particular the Republican Party, had, there's a blocking me- mechanism that is now in place in the Republican Party to prevent action. It's a is a frozen political system. And you know, unless unless the Democrats could win a huge, overwhelming, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Or get and rid of the, the legislative House, And the presidency. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, get get a Supreme Court that is not a locked-in conservative Supreme Court for a generation. There's not the prospect of any significant change in the political system. We don't have a political system which can produce results anymore. It can it is it's it's totally frozen and calcified. And the Cohen, like in 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 a in a proper functioning government, what Cohen said would lead immediately to, you know, a massive series of hearings and impeachment by massive bipartisan majorities and a repudiation of the president and a repudiation of what he practices. But because of the way we are structurally fucked, it will lead to nothing. We don't I know that. I think you're being slightly too fatalistic, and I'm surprised I'm arguing this because I was mostly feeling <laughs> pessimistic myself. But here's why I feel like you're you're going too far. We don't know what will become public if the Democrats in the House really dig into investigating. And we also still don't know what Robert Mueller is going to say. And I think the behavior of the Republicans yesterday suggests that they will— play this game of, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, like no matter what. But one has to imagine there could be some kind of threshold or breaking point. And when you look back at Watergate, John Dean's 
quite damning testimony. It took 14 months from that testimony until um, Nixon's resignation. And what you see in there is a release of like a, a smoking gun tape. We still don't quite have that. Um, oh my God. Yes, what? we do. We have a hundred smoking guns and no, no one cares. I mean, not like the there's, a, there's a tape. The, pe- the, the, the president paid off a porn star. The, pre- the catch and kill the yeah, National Enquirer. I mean, that, way, in, in another generation, that's like gone. He's well, gone in five the, minutes with well, that. But he's gone because of there would have been norms at the time that would have overcome him. But but Nixon was nailed because there was actual audio recording of his voice ordering the cover up that we don't have anything like that yet. Right. I, the other thing I kept thinking about yesterday is the focus we all in the press and I, and among commentators have on committing crimes like Proving that Donald Trump, nailing him for some serious felony. I mean, that's really a lot of the focus of the analysis, right? Did Cohen's testimony provide enough new details that we really think now um, Trump was involved in a campaign finance conspiracy? And I just wonder if there's something mistaken about that because it takes the focus off this incredibly sleazy, unethical behavior. And, of course, the standard for impeachment isn't necessarily committing a serious felony. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting to just answer the question of whether it is a crime or not, because I'd like to know the fact of that case. But one must quickly follow on by saying, for the purposes of of impeachment, that's immaterial. Crimes and misdemeanors does not mean it needs to be prosecuted as a crime. And I and and in, in the in, impeachment context, in the impeachment in the context, and in the impeachment context, all of the norms of the, I mean, in the impeachment context and the way it was created, um, impeachment would have happened. I mean, because it was about protecting norms and the fact alone that the president lied about having business in Russia during a presidential campaign, which is a material fact so important that he hid it for a guy who wasn't hiding very much. I mean, you know, this is a candidate who spoke with extraordinary candor and yet kept this in a very tightly locked box so that essentially he was elected on false pretenses, you could argue, and that that would have been for Hamilton a perfect Enough. reason to go to go after and impeaching him. Dianu. Um, I would just I'm going to take the last word here, which is to say Michael Cohen, incredibly compelling witness. Uh, I understand why the company country was gripped by it. What what is so demoralizing is this is the activity that Congress can engage in. This is their action. Do we are we having any conversation about, you know, reasonable attempts to to fix American infrastructure or to to reduce inequality or to, you know, have a better healthcare system for all or to change how education is funded. I mean, that that is happening on the margins. Nobody thinks any of that stuff is could possibly become law. There's not a there's not a reasonable conversation about any major piece of legislation to tackle the real problems the country faces where the legislature can act to improve the lives of Americans generally. None of that is happening. It is a broken totally broken system and and we we kid ourselves if we think that that the that the theatrics and the and the kind of the, the true i mean it truly you know revelatory things that michael cohen's saying uh that those actually translate into anything other than you know more more anger but this is scrambling because that debate you're talking about is happening right now in the democratic primary field like that's what they're arguing about are those ideas and so if the political system does still work, then the Democrats will pick a candidate, and then that yeah, the yeah. the presidential election, the twenty twenty election, one hopes, will, one hopes, but they they will not, and they will not get anything passed because nothing gets passed. Well, that may, but that yes, may be, I hope that so. may yeah, be, but I also think, I mean, I think that there are just going to be some really interesting structural questions that emerge after twenty twenty about the legislative filibuster, about the role of the Supreme Court, like. Because of the stresses on the system that you're pointing to, David, it depends. Hey, Slate Plus members and non-Slate Plus members. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GapFest and other Slate podcasts. Today, we are going to improve the U.S. citizenship citizenship test that we talked about last week. We're going to come up with the real questions that people should have to answer before they get to be U.S. citizens. Go to Slate.com slash GapFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. 
And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. President Trump held a second very brief summit with Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator in Vietnam. Interesting choice, another communist country that was formerly at war with us, but that has made a turn toward more economic freedom and prosperity. So obviously sending a signal to to Kim about that. Um this summit appears to have collapsed essentially as soon as it started because, according to the president and according to American officials, Kim demanded that sanctions, all the various UN sanctions against North Korea, be lifted before any serious denuclearization could happen. So the president flew back to Washington. He is in flight, presumably, as we speak. Emily, is this a humiliation for the president that he traveled all this way and and that they got nothing and, and, you know, were misguided about what they should have expected? Um, huh. Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of it in that strong terms. I mean, the funny thing is I feel like Trump is getting praise for walking away because there was no way. Everyone was so afraid he was just going to give away the farm that, like, just the fact that he didn't do that is like, oh, phew. Uh, and then the packing of the bags is excused. But, yeah, it it is pretty humiliating, I would say. I mean, he still succeeded in causing some kind of distraction from the Cohen news, I guess. But yeah. this is equally bad for him, this headline. Also, can I just say, like, I am horrified by this taking the word of this autocratic dictator about the tragic death of an American um, in a North Korean prison. Like, I just don't understand this propensity for, like, he said it, I believe him, which we now have about Kim and about Putin and, you know, Saudi Arabians. Mm -hmm. Just, ah, yuck. Well, especially, and we always need to just kind of reset this, which is the credulity uh, when dictators say it and the total incredulity when your own, like, intelligence services tell you things. uh, Or, you know, I mean, think about the standard of skepticism about what country Barack Obama was lived uh, was born in, uh, and then compare that to the credulity about Kim Jong Un. But it's also just the spectacle of it. Like it's watching an American president like be so cowed and credulous. I just I, I'm not like a big fan of American power on the international stage, but there's something just cringing about mm. this. You know, so it broke down. I mean, it's better than where things were in North Korea two years ago. I mean, if you're of the view that that the president is getting played, then um, then, you know, it's just more time for Kim to be on the world stage and look like an equal um, to Emily's point. Think about the things that Kim has gotten already. He's gotten uh, sort of exoneration for anything that happened to Otto Warmbier in the North Korean prison. The president testified to his good character. Um, Remember, this is a man who killed his half-brother and his uncle and has imprisoned, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in gulags. Um, Nevertheless, the president testified to his good character. Visually, he was seen as an absolute equal to the American president. The verification requirements that were once considered so obviously a part of any deal that the Secretary of State said it was insulting for a reporter to ask if there was verification, that verification has just been thrown, apparently, uh, in the course of negotiations, roughly thrown out the window. So... Kim has gotten a lot already. What do you mean in the deal that didn't get done? In the deal that didn't get done, but also Secretary of State Pompeo was saying, well, of course, verification is a part of everything we do, and it's and it's you know stupid to ask that. Well, no, that was you know it wasn't. <laughs> Apparently, you know? it was extremely and, important to and ask that. But I guess the question, you know, it depends on what your worldview is. Um, you know, they are talking. There are there's dialogue between the two countries in a way there wasn't. They are. Uh, 
they have nuclear warheads. It's unclear whether what they can really do with them. But the the tension in the region is much lower. Um, you know, there is. Uh, Depending on how this all ends, um, this could be seen as a as a as a nothing. We just don't know. But I, I guess what the big question really is um, that North Korea has done this before. They play footsie when sanctions start to hurt, and then they back off, which looks exactly like what they're doing. So why is this um, why is this instance different? I have to say on the on the question of is it is it embarrassing and and disgraceful for him to be treating Kim as an equal and to be flattering him and even the, giving him a pass on on the torture and murder of an American prisoner in North Korea that doesn't bother me I think that's okay I think when you are dealing with when you're trying to make a deal with people who are thuggish and you you want to get something from them one of the things you can give them that doesn't cost very much is a little bit of respect and a little bit of of uh, face and that that's helpful to me the problem is that Trump only does this for for the dictator's enemies, and he he treats our friends and our allies like dirt. Especially but he didn't the get anything, ones. David. Even if you want to well, excuse no, he didn't get all anything. that, and I don't I, think we should I, excuse I, all of it. Because I, I, it's... I, I, I recognize he didn't get anything, but I but I, in fact, I think John, you tweeted this today. There are often summits where nothing comes out of it, but that doesn't mean they are unproductive, that something later can come out of it. This may not be one of them. This may have just been a complete waste of time and energy and money. That is entirely possible. But I don't think the showmanship and the the the, the kind of giving uh, props to Kim, if you, if you think it is part of getting towards a peace deal, is in itself wrong. What's wrong is that you don't treat our real allies and friends with respect. It's not well, – there's a, there's, a, there's a theater that goes right. with diplomacy and this was a, Trump engaging in that theater. He likes to do it. He likes to suck up to dictators. That is true. But it's also important sometimes to do it. Now, he ha- it happens to n- have not produced any immediate result in this case. But that doesn't mean that the effort was, was, was immoral. But it's giving away so much, at least right now, for so little. And there is a real cost in human rights to the United States giving dictators a free pass to kill people, which is where we're at. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a real thing. What people, what presidents say about the things like that on the international stage matters to actual people's lives. And, like, I feel like you're losing sight of that. And the context of the other meetings, I think, is and and that you are, but you, but David is talking to context as well, which is how the the uh, uh, allies are treated. I, I my kind of my um, little bit of historical context was talking about Reykjavik, where basically Reagan walks away from a deal with Gorbachev is pilloried by um, the left as have, having it been a few, huge failure. Over time in history, it it turns out that it wasn't as much of a failure. Um, as it was interpreted in the time. In fact, Gorbachev says that what they worked out there, even though they didn't get to the final deal, was necessary for the ultimate final deal they got to. So the point is basically, we never know. However, what Reagan never did was say, uh, Soviet human rights are just fine, and I believe Gorbachev when he says everything's fine. Um, He was able to do, keep both going at the same time, holding an important American value about human rights at at the same time as working on a deal. And maybe we should give Reagan and the Reagan administration some credit for understanding the man they were dealing with. I mean, Gorbachev did prove to be someone who was capable of being a statesman and, and really moving his country. We have no evidence of that well, in this case. Uh, but, but we definitely think that's what the president... I mean, the president is making a very interesting and maybe hugely fatal, or if this all works out, genius move to basically give Kim Jong-un a huge amount of praise in the hopes that it turns him. It has not shown any evidence it's turning him. We have intelligence that shows that, in fact, they are continuing their nuclear program. And one other thing that Margaret Brennan, uh, the host of Face the Nation, pointed out, which was really interesting to me, is the president keeps talking about how North Korea can be an economic powerhouse. They had the meeting in Vietnam in part to say, here's a former enemy of the United States, and look how well it's doing economically. Margaret's point was, okay, sure, right, but does, is that really what Kim Jong-un wants in the sense that big global economic uh, activity with the rest of the world means that his power hold, the entire structure of North Korean life, is going to have to open up and get all kinds of, uh, you know, get messy with the rest of the world? Is that the kind of thing that he wants? Or is it immediately apparent to him that that's going to be what he wants? And if that's not the case, is the president basically talking at length about something that he thinks is going to turn Kim Jong-un and it's really not going to turn him at all. In fact, it may be sort of, 
I mean, it just may just be no inducement at all. Certainly from this um, meeting, it seems like he was not induced to uh, do what the U.S. wanted. I mean, look, isn't one way to think about this that in the short term, yes, it's nice that everybody is no longer like throwing um, lightning bolts at each other on Twitter. Um, it, it's like you wake up in the morning, you don't worry so much about um, having a war with North Korea, like good. But it seems to me like the odds are greater that we're watching the clock run mm. out on nuclearization in North Korea. And we're going to look back on this period as this time where we like had a president who gave a free pass to a dictator as they became more powerful and more able to hit us. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Patrick Keefe, staff writer at The New Yorker, has written a brilliant and beautiful and totally page-turning new book, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland. It is an account of the troubles in Northern Ireland, a story told through people, a handful of people who participated in the struggle against the British occupation as terrorists, as politicians, perhaps as collaborators. It's just a fantastic book. I cannot say that enough. Patrick, welcome to the GabFest. What or who is this book about? Well, it started, I mean, initially it was sort of about these two women. Um, the book started in, in in 2013. I read an obituary in the Times of a woman named Dolores Price, who was the first woman to join the IRA as like a full kind of frontline um, soldier, leading bombing missions and targeting people for execution and that sort of thing. And um, in the obituary, it mentioned that she had been implicated in this famous, famous, I mean, famous over there, not so well known over here, uh, war crime from the Troubles. In 1972, there was a mother of 10 named Jean McConville who was abducted in front of her kids and disappeared. And she was a widow. So when she w- was killed by the IRA, uh, those kids were all orphaned. And um, so I thought there might be an opportunity to kind of look at the lives of these two women and this one act of violence and then hopefully tell a larger story about the, the Troubles and the legacy of the Troubles. Explain to people who wonder what this was all about, what this was all about. The Troubles, you mean? Yeah, The Troubles. Capsule, a capsule history of The Troubles. I'll do The Troubles <laughs> yeah, in 90 it, seconds. I know it ain't oh. easy. There are these Catholic people, know, these yeah. Protestant yeah. people, and they were mad right. I know, but then the, why are the British? hate anyway. the Protestants. The Protestants right. hate the Catholics. Distilling the history of The Troubles is so hard because it goes back. They call it the ancient quarrel between England and Ireland, and it goes back so far. You know, it actually goes back. It's before the to before the the establishment of the Protestant Church. So it initially wasn't a Catholic Protestant thing at all, but it was essentially about English dominion over mm-hmm. Ireland. And in you have the Irish War of Independence in the 1920s, and then you get the partition of Ireland, which essentially uh, draws a border kind of in the in the north. Um, and you have this little statelet, which is a British state where there's a majority of Protestants, uh, and then the Republic of Ireland in the south, which is majority Catholic. And the Troubles um, refers to a period of time starting in the late 1960s, early 70s, when Catholics in the North had been uh, subjected to pretty terrible discrimination. They didn't have a lot of economic or political opportunities. They had tended to just leave, which is part of the reason you get so many Irish people coming to places like the U.S. And there was a civil rights movement and then uh, a more violent effort by the IRA to attempt to push the British out of Northern Ireland. There were also loyalist terrorist groups who were loyal to the British crown and the state came in. And so you had a kind of uh, multi-vector conflict that became extremely bloody and grinding over the course of decades. And for the IRA, the objective was we're going to get the Brits out. And part of what my book is about is that you have this kind of interesting moral question, right, which is for Dolores Price or for some of these other people who joined the IRA when they were young, in their 20s, they're doing these terrible, terrible things. They're you know, kidnapping, murdering, bombing. And they're they're doing them, and what they're telling themselves is, eventually, we are going to drive the British out of Ireland once and for all. And at that point, uh, the ends will justify the means, and I will have a kind of moral justification for what I've done. 
And in the late 1990s, Jerry Adams, who had been the commanding officer in the IRA for a bunch of these people, he sort of reinvented himself as a peacemaker. And he does a deal uh, with the Republic of Ireland and with the British government in which he says, it's okay, the Brits can stay. Eventually, what they call it the, con- the consent principle. So eventually, if there's a vote, if there's a referendum, then you leave. But until then, you can stay and that's all right. And for Dolores Price and these other people in the IRA, they're like, wait a second. That wasn't the deal. And they end up very traumatized looking back at these terrible things they're doing. They had done and saying, you know, you, you've robbed me of the kind of retroactive justification for what I was doing. And then on top of that, Jerry Adams says, oh, and incidentally, I personally was never in the IRA. <laughs> uh, so they feel disowned and angry. So, Patrick, I mean, you do use the two stories of these two women to tell the story with, like, great narrative and mastery. And, you know, it it's such a tangled web, this story. And I I'm, know that it's been told in other guises, but I felt like I was learning something because the details were so vivid on so many of the pages. And I it made me just wonder about your methodology and in particular about this like secret hidden vault of documents in a library in Boston, right? Yeah. Well, so this is part of what this book started as a piece in The New Yorker in 2015. And um, had my pitch been uh, this woman was killed in 1972, and I want to tell a story about 1972. I never would have been able to to uh, do the piece. But, you know, the troubles end in 1998. There's this famous the Good Friday Agreement, peace agreement. And there's no discussion of truth or reconciliation or accountability. Right. You have 3,600 people killed, but how do we deal with that? And part of the reason they tabled it is they would never have gotten an agreement if – that was on the on the table. They, w- they would never have um, come to any consensus about how to deal with that. So one thing that happens in this vacuum is that Boston College, which has these long historic ties to Ireland, starts this secret oral history project to get combatants from both sides to come in and talk about the things they did in great detail, these kind of 10, 12, 15-hour recordings you know, the bombings they did, the, uh, the killings, the kidnappings, what have you. And the, the idea was that these would be secret. So the deal was, you know, if you come in and you tell me your story, I guarantee you that uh, we won't re- release it until after your death because there's no statute of limitations on a lot of these things. And so you, you could get criminally charged otherwise. And part of what the book is about is that that turns out to be a promise that Boston College really couldn't legally make. Uh, and so it all comes apart in pretty spectacular fashion. The number of people killed in the battles of Northern Ireland um, are relatively small, 3,600 people. That's, it's obviously, Ireland is a small country, so that's a, right. you know, a smaller denominator. But why does it occupy such an outsized role in the imagination. I, I did think about this often. So, uh, you know, one of the things I'm writing about in the book is the, the so Gene McConnell was disappeared, and that's a particularly heinous thing to do. Um, but over the whole course of the Troubles, you know, there's, there's if, just a little over a dozen people are disappeared, which compared right. to Argentina right. like or Chile, Argentina. exactly. It's, it's like nothing. Wednesday afternoon. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you've also got to remember the smallness of the place, right? So... The strange thing about um, Northern Ireland and Belfast in particular is it's so tiny that when you're there, everybody knows everybody. Um, the you know each of these individual acts reverberates out across the whole culture and the whole society. So I think that's part of it. There's a whole kind of almost John le Carre side to this story, which is that the British Army and the and the police in Northern Ireland and British intelligence realized at a certain point we want to penetrate the IRA, and they became astonishingly good at this. And I mean, by some estimates, by the end of the Troubles, one in four people who was in the IRA was also working for the British. But that then raises a whole host of really interesting ethical and legal questions. So some of these people in the IRA and also in loyalist terrorist groups are out there murdering people in rather large numbers with the knowledge and sometimes with the actual like logistical coordination of their handlers in the British government. And this is becoming an issue now. Mm. So now you're getting all these lawsuits that essentially say, well, wait a second, if mm. you have some IRA guy who's out there massacring people, but he's reporting periodically to his handler in British intelligence, does the British state not bear some responsibility for that? Right. What is the residue at this point now uh, and do you think there's a chance the, the, uh, the there's petrol on the ground that could uh, inflame again with the right spark? Well, I think if the spark is Brexit, then um, then it could very well. I, you know, the 
the thing that was shocking to me going over there was I think I had had a kind of sense that the Good Friday Agreement happened and it was this tremendous success and that everything was kind of coming up roses in Northern Ireland. And you go over Mm -hmm. there and it's incredibly brittle. There's huge amounts of tension. It's still extremely segregated. There are these things, they call them peace walls, these huge towering walls between the neighborhoods. It's like keeping caging animals at a zoo. Um, And so I was really struck by that. And then you, 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 layer on top of that the idea that in a few weeks' time, if there's a no-deal Brexit, you're going to get the return of a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. Uh, and I think that could be a spark. Now, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the most alarmist view that you're going to get a return to 1972, but I think you'll absolutely see violence. Is it, isn't it just as likely or possibly likely that the Republicans will then win on the ballot box, what they were unable to win on the ballot battlefield, that they will get unification because if they're Northern Ireland, even the, the, the Protestants in Northern Ireland do not want to be living separately. I mean, they don't want a closed border, right? Right. They all want, they all want to have free flow of commerce and couldn't they vote? Couldn't there be a vote, which unifies Ireland finally? Well, so there's a bunch of things going on. I mean, one of them is just demographically, um, you will be uh, shocked to learn that uh, Catholics reproduce at a faster rate than Protestants do. And um, at some point in the next few years, you're going to have a majority of, um, of Catholics, actually, in the North. Uh, but then the other issue, right, is with the Good Friday Agreement, you create this situation for Northern Ireland where you can sort of be both. You're part of the UK, you're part of Europe, you know, uh, the, the, you, have, you can get a, a passport for the Republic of Ireland, you have the best of all worlds. And what Brexit does is it's going to force people to choose. And when you look at the, you know, there's all this talk about a backstop, creating a backstop, precisely in order to avoid the return of a hard border. So what the EU has said is, okay, well, the backstop should be that actually Northern Ireland remains with the Republic of Ireland kind of in the EU uh, for trading purposes, which basically is going to push the border into the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I think there could be a kind of astonishing historical irony here, right, which is that uh, what 3600 dead and all this carnage over three decades couldn't achieve might actually end up in the long run getting achieved by Brexit. It's so hard to read the book and not come away, or at least I found it so hard to read it, and I come away incredibly sympathetic to Jerry Adams and to feel like there's a man who's made a historically hard choice. Yeah, it's sort of benefited him, but it's the right choice and for greatest good for greatest number and suck it up, Dolores Price. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that was not my intention at all. Um, the my hope was to kind of uh, no, but here's uh, my 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 feeling was um, if I could present these people in enough uh, complex detail that different readers would draw different conclusions. So I have talked to people who've read the book and feel very very differently. They feel you know extremely kind of rapidly sympathetic with Dolores Price and uh, and pretty contemptuous of Adams. So I'm, it's, I'm, I'm pleased well, to think that I'm there's a, a, I'm a, I'm a prag- I'm a pragmatist. There so. you go. But I have a, one actually final question I, uh, using host prerogative here, which is I lived in England in 1980-81 and Bobby Sands and Bobby Sands' hunger strike. So Bobby Sands was an IRA soldier who was arrested and was being held in prison. And he was among a number of IRA prisoners who went on a hunger strike. And then Sands was elected to British Parliament as he was on his hunger strike and then died on his hunger strike. And there were, uh, I didn't realize this, or I'd forgotten that there was these nine other men who also died on their hunger strike as well. My question is, why has the hunger strike not reemerged as a, as a, as an effective method of protest? I, why aren't Palestinians hunger striking? It seems to me like it was incredible. They totally have. Are you kidding? Why is it not effective? I mean, the Israelis have force-fed them. When you start force-feeding people, it also happened in Guantanamo, too. Prisoners have absolutely... And and in the United States last year, there was a brief hunger strike, like, generally. So I think that... But I guess that, that force-feed... That the British decided not to force-feed. The British ruled they couldn't force-feed, and they lost. They, then yes. they lost. Whereas if you do force-feed, you get to win. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so. it's a really brutal tool of government. Does that make sense, Patrick? It does. I mean, so part of the part of the story, you know, this woman, Dolores Price, and goes on hunger strike, she and her sister, and they end up getting force fed by the government for 200 days. But there are all sorts of people who say this is torture, basically, it's torture to do this. And they kind of win. And after their case, the British government says, all right, we're not going to force feed any people, people anymore. And it's after that, that Bobby Sands and the others go on hunger strike. And so there's this weird, when Dolores Price looked back, she felt sort of responsible that those 10 guys died, because she had sort of initiated that policy change. Uh, If you force feed people, you can keep them alive 
forever. And if you're doing it behind the scenes, whether it's in Guantanamo or wherever else, you know, I, I think a lot of this is driven by publicity. I think what makes a hunger strike effective is this is a you know maybe a kind of slightly crass analogy, but in in the book I say it's it's almost a little bit like the Tour de France. You know, it's like a, it becomes a spectator sport for rubberneckers, where you're looking at you know how long it's a it's a kind of act of human endurance. And if you don't have the oxygen of publicity, then it's just somebody you know starving themselves or getting force fed behind the scenes. Right. I can still. I mean, my ten year old brain can still conjure up that image of Sands in a blanket, wrapped in a blanket, his hair wild and long. And and gaunt, and then then and then the huge headlines when he died. And then he's gone. But look, that but that was the the birth of the peace process, actually, because I think that was the point where Jerry Adams realized the popular support we get from the spectacle of a of a martyr peacefully starving himself to death for the cause, as distinct from putting a bomb in Harrods or whatever it is, is what will carry us through to the end of this thing. Patrick Heath's book is "Say Nothing." It is a story of Northern Ireland and the troubles and. Really, I just cannot recommend this book enough. It is, it's an incredible read, beautifully written, brilliantly reported. Good luck, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a, a Guinness or an Irish coffee or maybe an Irish whiskey at your, at your local Irish pub, talking about the troubles, what will you be chattering about, John? So my chatter is about um, something I found on Boing Boing, which was a visualization of global brand rankings over the last 15 years. And it's between um, actually it's more than is it? it's yeah, I guess it's actually it feels like it's a little more than 15. Anyway, it starts in 2000. And so in 2000, you see Coca-Cola at the top. And these are companies, you know, Coca-Cola, GE, Microsoft, Samsung, Nokia. And it, it's just a wonderful way to visualize the change in global brands and um i won't spoil it for you but if you watch it um watch what happens in like 2011 because basically things are relatively static from 2000 to 2011 companies that are you know coca-cola is at the top and ibm is at the top and they kind of move a little and so forth but it's all within a very very narrow range and then suddenly <laughs> it just uh, changes a lot. And it is an uh, interesting way to reflect on big brands and companies that are a part of our world and the way in which technology changes quite briskly. Emily, what is your chatter? I am going to be chattering this weekend about this big opportunity that New York State has to pass some really significant reforms on criminal justice. Um, this is so New York State is like woefully behind many other states on issues of um, providing evidence before people have to decide whether to take a guilty plea or in a rare instance go to trial. New York has like just an, a really retrograde law in which prosecutors can withhold evidence until the morning of the trial. So there are proposals from Governor Cuomo and some state lawmakers to fix that. And then there's also a fascinating conversation going on about bail reform in New York and proposals that would end cash bail. And um, the details are very much still in play in the legislature. But we're talking about like a kind of once in a half century opportunity for New York to get itself together on this. Uh, so I will be watching this with um, great interest in the few ne- in the next days or weeks, however long it takes. All right. My chatter is about... Weird happenings in the Ninth District in North Carolina. Obviously, there was this election, which has now been uh, rescheduled because of ballot chicanery by the Republican campaign of Mark Harris. Mark Harris uh, was going to run in this rescheduled election, then realized I think he was he was uh, damaged goods and has pulled out of this election and has endorsed another candidate. He has endorsed a new Republican candidate. And I just want to flag for everybody this new Republican candidate because it is amazing the kind of scammers and ludicrous people who now get to run for Congress, particularly in the Republican Party. So the new uh, leading candidate, I'm not sure if actually if he gets to be the, the candidate, but the leading candidate is a person named Stoney Rushing. And he's a, a, a gun rights advocate and a uh, person who very, very, he owns a gun range. He's a county commissioner in, in a county in North Carolina in that district. And what's interesting about Stoney Rushing is that he dresses like Boss Hogg. He wears this white suit like Boss Hogg with chomping a cigar 
And he likens himself to Boss, Boss Hogg, who, if you remember, is the kind of neo-Confederate con artist at the heart of the Dukes of Hazard. This is his thing. This is, the, this is his approach to the world. It's just crazy that this is where we are, that we have somebody who wants to be Boss Hogg, who believes he should represent this district in North Carolina. I, I don't know what to say. We also have a listener chatter. We have a ton of great listener chatters this week. This was even better than the usual week. I know I say this every week. This week, it was there were like 10, each of which would be worthy of, all, of, of chattering. Um, and so... I just would say, please keep them coming to at Slate Gabfest on Twitter. Tell us great topic worthy of discussion at your cocktail party. Today, Jared Novak at Jared Nova sends us a, a very small, charming story about CAPTCHAs. You know, CAPTCHAs are the things that you have to yes. do to, to get validated as a human being so that you can buy a ticket somewhere or get access to your email or whatever it is. It's a it's a thing that tries to keep robots out of, of technology and out of getting access to things they shouldn't get access to. And there's a new CAPTCHA test that's being designed, and it's being designed to take advantage of the fact that humans are dumber than robots. And so it's it's one, it, it's a series of questions. This is an Amazon proposal. It's a series of questions which humans answer wrong because they make sort of predictable cognitive errors about counting the number of letters in a, in a sentence or, or getting tricked by a sentence to thinking an answer must be one thing when actually there's a totally obvious other answer because of the nature of who we are. And I love the idea that we are, um, that we're so dumb that uh, our dumbness can give us an advantage over the robots. So let's, let's hope that works. Probably the robots will learn to be <laughs> stupid soon, but whatever. That's our show for today. The Gaffest was produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. And Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Special thanks to Melissa Kaplan for engineering here. For Alan Pang at CBS, you can follow us on Twitter at Slate Gaffest. And please come to our shows March 27th in D.C., April 12th, I think. April 12th in Charlottesville. Yeah. Slate.com slash live. For Emily Basil and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.